for the rest of us, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 37 today. Uh, and if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you there in the rows, that'll be page 863 of the Bibles that we've provided there for you in the row. Now, it's a, an exciting time in the life of our church. I mean, there's hardly ever a week or a month that I, you know, as uh, one of the pastors here, my name is Tanner, by the way. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, look forward to meeting you. Uh, but, you know, I'm always thinking this is an exciting time. You know, we're moving forward and God's doing a great work and I'm always kind of excited. Uh, but, but this morning, it's great to hear from Lou because Lou gives us a picture of what it means to not just say the gospel needs to go forth here, but the gospel needs to go forth to the globe, to the nations, every people tribe, tongue, language. People need to hear what it means to know Christ and worship him. And so we, we love to have uh, people like Lou here to, to tell us what this looks like for them to go and to give their lives for the sake of the mission of Christ. This past Friday night, many of uh, you know, we held a, a multiply event and we had over 30 uh, of our people gather in four different locations and maybe some I heard even earlier online in your home or wherever you could to, to just consider what it means to be a missional Christian, to, to live a life that is saying, hey, I'm committed to this in such a way. I want to make disciples with the life that God has given me. And so I continue to be encouraged about where God is taking. I mean, this, you know, attendance is one thing. Yes, this is, you know, our attendance is growing. Praise God. But, but, but here's, here's the deal, right? Um, it's always kind of this, this tension, right? And I think for all of us that, that love God and, and care about it, the mission, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. We want to celebrate evidences of grace, and we want to we say thank you, God, for how you are at work on the one hand, and then on the other hand, we don't want to kind of grow content or complacent with what God is doing, but we want to say, God, how can you continue to use us? How can you continue to push us forward as individuals and also as a church? Because as John highlighted, this is what we're all about. We want to glorify God, worship him by living out his mission, as a community, a distinct community transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's like the sermon every week. I mean, if we're preaching a sermon, by the way, that doesn't hit this consistently across the board, then we have not done our job. And so even as we think, thank God and celebrate what he's doing here in Redemption Hill and, and across greater Boston, we're not the only new-er, new-ish church, uh, I think we also should step back and say, God, what about the 55,000 people in Medford who probably aren't attending a church this morning? And you could just multiply that out in the cities around Somerville, Cambridge, Everett, Revere, Stoneham, Winchester, Burlington, Arlington, and the list goes on, Right? Because in reality, we know that, that this is an area, while in some ways somewhat religious, it is what people call, it is a post-Christian context, okay? So, so areas like the Northwest, Seattle, Oregon, some of, some of those areas, and then of course other areas across the globe, you have what are, are called pre-Christian contexts. 
Context where the, the church has never really thrived, the, the gospel has never really taken root and gone forth. But then you have other areas like Boston, greater Boston, New England, that is known as a post-Christian context. In other words, this was an area where the gospel once rang forth and went forth with, with great intensity and people responded to what's in this book and the message of Christ. And, and, and now we've kind of gone past that. You know, I might kind of have this loose faith in God, but it's really not that personal, and it certainly has, you know, nothing to do with, with the church, you know, for, for, which, for whom Jesus died, that church. And so it's healthy for us to ask the question, why? Why is that? And there are a variety of reasons why people, listen, we've been here for two and a half years now. My family, all these families that, that moved here to start Redemption Hill, we've been here for two and a half years. And people have been generally friendly and welcoming when we say, hey, we moved here to start a new church. But no one is like falling down on their face. Man, I've been praying for you for so long. I cannot wait. I'll be there on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? It's just not happening. So, so why, why is that? This. Well, again, there are a variety of reasons, but I just want to give one kind of common perception of the church that Jesus really addresses here in Luke 6 as we conclude the Sermon on the Mount. And it goes something like this. 67% of 20 to 29-year-olds and over uh, 75% of people over 30 said this was true, all right? The church is full of hypocrites. People who criticize others for doing the same thing they do themselves. The church is full of hypocrites. People who criticize others for the very same things they do themselves. And so we know this is a, this is a, a generalization, right? This is, this is the pers perspective of those that are not in the church, and, 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 you know, we can, you know, say, hey, well, you know, if they join us, then they're joining the number of hypocrites, nobody lives a perfectly consistent life, and, you know, we can kind of say, well, you know, they're just saying that because they don't really want to be involved in church, so it's easy to kind of excuse, but let's think about it from two other angles. Number one, perhaps there is great validity to what this number tells us, right? I mean, there, there's at least a measure of validity here, right? I mean, often the church is, it, it, it is hypocritical in our positions, in our own individual lives. Added to that, did you notice that it says these people are those who criticize others for doing the very same thing? So this is what we're going in the sermon today, this, this kind of judgmental spirit that can be present in our lives. So number one, is this true? And then number two, even if it's not even true, like remember we were saying Redemption Hill, we're trying, you know, we're putting our best before, we're trying to declare the gospel, we're trying to display the gospel, we're trying to, you know, live out our faith, we're trying to show that we, you know, not just talk the talk, but we walk the walk, and we're, you know, about this. At the same time, right, perception is what? It's reality. Perception is reality. So, so if this is how 75, roughly, percent of this area thinks about the church, then what do we do with that? And how do we respond to this type of perception? Well, Jesus is going to help us with this. 
in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, we looked at verses 20 through 36 last week. And, and what we, if you'll remember from last week, we, we said that Jesus is preaching this sermon to present a set of values that really turn our values and our way of doing things upside down. Okay, this is a complete reversal of values that Jesus is putting forth here in the gospel. He is, he is calling people who would wish to follow him to a complete counterculture. So that's what we've called the Sermon on the Mount, the, the counterculture of the kingdom of Christ. And we've said that disciples of Christ are called to live as a distinct counterculture in the world. So when, when Jesus is opening his sermon, he's saying, look, I know the world tells you you need to be rich. You need to be full. You need to laugh now. You need to look down on the weak and the powerless. But I'm saying, blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who are hungry. If you have spiritual poverty and spiritual hunger in your life, and even if you're persecuted for my sake, that's not such a bad thing. In fact, the blessing of God will rest on you. And the world is telling you, hey, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I'm saying, yeah, of course you're going to love your friends, but you also need to love your enemies. And so he takes our values and he turns them upside down. And we're going to continue to see how he does that this week as we pick up on a few other characteristics of what it looks like to live a countercultural lifestyle in the kingdom of Christ. Number one, the counterculture of Christ calls us to a life of integrity. Look in verse 37. This is where we start our passage this morning. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now, again, these two words right here, these first two words, judge not. Some translations just simply say, do not judge. I mean, people love these words of Jesus, right? Do not judge. Don't, you, you can't judge me. Jesus said, don't judge, right? I mean, we even kind of take the mantra further. You're like, people get tattoos. Only God can judge me. And that's, you know, theologically true. But, but what are people really saying when they say, don't judge me? That's one question. What is Jesus really saying when he's saying, do not judge? Well, first let's understand what he's not saying, all right? Jesus is not giving a prohibition against exercising discernment, okay? This is not a, it's not a, a saying, hey, don't be discerning in your life. In fact, we would just have to negate other parts of the gospel. We always interpret scripture with scripture when there may be something that's a little fuzzy or often misunderstood. He says in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Okay? So Jesus is not saying never give a judgment on anything as if we can't discern right from wrong. We can't make a distinction between right and wrong or have moral standards. But he's saying, don't judge as if you were in my place. Judgment does belong to God. God only has ultimate say in our life in the final sense, the final judgment. All right, so that, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, do not have a judgmental spirit about you. You see, we oftentimes have this, this kind of sense of superiority about ourselves, even an arrogance that we, you know, kind of look down on others who do not talk like us and act like we act, even in the church. 
It's, it's what Jesus often chides the Pharisees for. It's why he tells this parable in Luke 18 about this Pharisee who gives a prayer to God that is completely self-righteous. God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I have it all together spiritually. I fast, I pray, I do my thing. And, and God is saying, look, if, if that's your attitude, you, you have no clue what it looks like to live life in my kingdom. So, so what Jesus is doing, he's undercutting judgmentalism, okay? And think about this. So, so on the one hand, he has the call to, to people to not be judgmental, so it's not your role to play God in the lives of others. But then for those who would cry out, hey, you can't judge me, what, what's going on there? Well, we know, right? It's kind of what we've already talked about. It's people are saying, hey, you can't tell me what to do. I set my own path. I call all the shots in my life. I am my own authority. Don't, don't tell me that what I am doing is wrong. And what's going on here is, is what's been going on from the very beginning of creation. What we want to do, and, and this is for those outside the church, this is those for the, us, uh, of us inside the church, what we like to do, we said it last week, is we like to build our own little kingdoms and call the shots, right? So, so, so it's not God who is our authority, but it, we are our authority. We don't want anyone else telling us what to do except for ourselves. And so Jesus says, look, neither of those work out very well in my kingdom. But this is a particularly a word for those who would be inside the church. And it's a, it's a command not to be judgmental. Now, he really helps us understand what this looks like in this parable that he gives in verses 39 through 42. So I want to read that for us as we look at the cure for being judgmental. Number, uh, verse 39, he says, He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out that is in your brother's eye. So how can we be a church? How can we be a people that can live countercultural, even to the culture that sometimes is pervasive in the church so that when people in Medford, like the lady that I met this week in Medford Square, who said, you know what? I disconnected from the church a long time ago because it was more about rules than love and, and the people wanted to kind of create extra rules than what God had said. And so, you know, there was a, definitely a sense of, of judgmentalism there that she was, as she was uh, sharing. How can we live lives that would push back against that and actually be welcoming to those in our community? Well, number one, here's the first encouragement. Examine your life caref carefully and recognize your own sin. Examine your life carefully and recognize your own sin. I mean, verse 41 now is here. Why do you see the speck? 
all right? This is just like the most minute kind of piece of, of, of dust that might, you know, almost microscopic, the word Jesus uses here. Why do you see the speck that is in your eye but do not see the log. I mean, this is kind of a funny picture. Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here to make the point, right? This log that is in your own eye. So so what Jesus is is teaching us is, look, you know what? We, We are often blind to everyone's sin except our own, right? We see everyone else's sin, but we do not see, maybe I didn't, did I say that right? No. It's the opposite of what I just said, all right? Thank you. I, I was trying to catch myself there. It's, so, so we, you get the point. Thank you. I better move on, all right? We are blind to no one's sin but our own. Sometimes you just read your notes, you know? It's easy for us to see, hey, they need to be more compassionate. Hey, they're so prideful, right? Not, not us, not me. When Christians fail to see our, our own sin and be transparent about our own flaws, it only perpetuates this kind of view that Christians are holier than thou, right? And so Jesus is calling us to self-examination here. He's saying, look, you have to see the speck that is in your eye or actually the log that is in your eye so that you can then deal, deal properly and help someone else. He says, anything less than this is hypocrisy. And Michael Wilcox says, there is no sin about which Jesus spoke more scathingly than than hypocrisy. So the standards that we hold others to, we need to be living out ourselves. The expectations we have for others, we need to apply them to ourselves. And this may be a word for those of us who are prone to have a critical spirit, right? I mean, some of us in the room are are ultra analytical. We even get paid for a job that, you know, is part of the qualifications to be, you know, very analytical and, and, and precise in how we are looking at, you know, data or whatever the case may be. And then, then we transfer that in just to, to how we view others how we view what's going on, and we can become so critical. But Jesus is saying, look, instead of being so critical of others, why don't you be a little more self-critical? Recognize your own sin. And by the way, this is why we said verse 20 is so important here. Blessed are the poor. Why? Because it's those who are poor in spirit that will have the humility to look into their own lives and say, God, I I see that they have an issue going on here, a particular sin in their life, but you know what, God, where is the sin in my life? Because I've probably been there or I will be there one day to one degree or another, so God, show me my own sin first. Blessed are the poor, but woe to those who are rich. The rich think they have it all together. Man, I don't, I don't have any needs. I'm, 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 I'm okay. Self-sufficient. Ready to tear others down. So we need to examine our lives, recognize our own sin, and then move toward practicing a lifestyle of repentance. So, so this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you, you take out the log that is in your eye. 
It is a way to say, look, I'm going to not only see that I have some, some sin in my life, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to practice. Repentance just means change. Change our mind leads to a change of heart, change of action. And, and this is so important. Why? Because look, look back in verses 39 and 40. He says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So Jesus is saying here, how can we truly teach others if we are not living a lifestyle of repentance ourselves? We are to be those that are, that are growing in maturity like, like our, our master, like our teacher, Jesus. We're, we're to be growing in our character to be like him. And if we're not doing that, if we're not, if we're not practicing repentance in our own sin, then how are we going to have the capacity to lead someone else on the path of wisdom that Jesus is setting forth? Of course, the answer is we won't be able to. So he says, recognize your own sin, practice a lifestyle of repentance, and then thirdly, humbly extend counsel through a forgiving spirit. What is, what is understood here is, is not simply that we should not be judgmental, but that we should also practice discernment so that when we have a brother or sister that needs some help, some spiritual guidance, we would have the love and the compassion to come alongside of them and help them to see that and, and to restore them spiritually. So this is, this is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Having a self-judging spirit. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But watch on your, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So do you, do you see this instruction here? He's saying, yes, we want to keep our, our, our friends, those around us, on, on this path that God has for us. But we want to do so with a gentle spirit, understanding that, again, the, the sin that they have displayed in their life, we are capable of the very same sin. So it brings a measure of humility. It brings a measure of gentleness. So practically, how do you go about this? Maybe you get together with a friend and you say, man, tell me what's going on in your life. And then instead of kind of coming, because what does the judgmental person do? Remember, they are above, they are superior. They talk down to people, right? They don't put their arm around somebody, but they throw little, you know, truth grenades over the fence to try to correct people. But Jesus says, look, put your arm around someone. Have a conversation. Tell me what's going on. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about the consequences of this choice, this action? Jesus says, look, when, when we have a, a self-examining spirit, then we are in a position to humbly extend counsel. And, and we are to do so by having this forgiving spirit. Look back in verse 38. He has these par this parallelism going on here. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. So here's the antidote to, to judgmentalism is to extend forgiveness and give generosity. 
So, so it's not enough just to, to not be judgmental, but we are to go to people with a forgiving spirit, especially if they've wronged us, then we are quick to forgive and, and offer grace and generosity to those who may be struggling spiritually. And here's the, the good news. I love how Jesus does this over and over and over again. There is reward for those of us who follow Christ and commit to living life in his kingdom in this kind of way. Look at what he says in verse 38. He says, if you give and it will be given, then it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So to the generous, God will be generous. I love what C.S. Lewis says in, in, in a sermon he gave called The Weight of Glory. He says this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So, so, so make no mistake, we cannot earn God's favor, all right? We cannot earn salvation by any amount of good works. We are saved by God's grace. We are then set free to do good works, live a life that, that pleases God and pictures forth his kingdom. And then as we live life in a way that pleases him, Jesus says, you're, you're storing up treasure in heaven. Like these are real treasures here. This is a valid motivation. I mean, yes, God's glory should be preeminent in, in our motivations. This should be what drives us. But, but, but Jesus says, look, you're gonna be rewarded both in this life and in the life to come. So when we see these, these rewards, when Jesus is saying, hey, look, if you live this kind of way, just, just know you might make some sacrifices here. You might be persecuted on account of my sake, but, but know that you will be rewarded. So go after the reward. Have strong desires for God. And God will reward you generously. So, so the first encouragement in the, the, this counterculture is to live a life of integrity. It's consistent. We're seeing our own sin and then we're able to repent from that sin, change and help someone else where they are. Not in a judgmental way, but in a helpful way. Number two, the counterculture of Christ calls us to a life of internal transformation. We see this is in verses uh, 43 through 45, and, and the argument is continuing here. He's building on what he just said. Look at this. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So, so, so what Jesus is, is getting at here is he's saying the only way, even to go back to last week, the only way to love your enemies, the only way to not have a judgmental spirit is to have a heart that is being transformed by God's grace and a character that is then going to flow out of your life and produce this kind of fruit. So, so, so the question that comes for us, has God changed our heart from the inside out? Are we then producing the fruit of godliness and Christ-like character because God has done his work of grace 
in our lives. It's a matter of the heart. Paul Tripp says this. He gives the principle of inescapable influence. It's so good. You might want to write it down. He says, whatever rules the heart will exercise inescapable influence over a person's life and behavior. So listen, if just, you know, I want you to think very practically here, all right? Whatever is ruling your heart at any given moment, even right now, if, if Christ is supreme in your heart right now and you're hungering and thirsting for God, then, then however good or bad the preaching is, you're probably paying attention because like, man, God might have a word for me here. But if you're just kind of ruled by your own selfish desires and you know, doing your own thing, then that's also going to be evident because whatever rules the heart will exercise an inescapable influence over our lives. And he fleshes this out in a really uh, uh, helpful way by this framework that is known as heat, thorns, cross, fruit. Okay? This is, this is a paradigm for understanding and practicing biblical change. All right? So you, I'm really praying. Like we, we hit this like six months ago. We're going to hit it again probably in a few months, six months from now. We'll just keep hitting this again because it's so helpful for us spiritually. So, so what is this uh, understanding of biblical change? Number one, heat, our daily situations in life can be anything. I just gave you an example. What about driving down the road? You get a flat tire. That's heat. What about you're, you're, you're driving down the road and you see someone with a flat tire? That's heat. A situation's been introduced. What about, you know, before the service and, and one of our, you know, little children, the five-year-old runs up to the, to, the, to the back and they take the last cinnamon roll, right? That's heat. Right? What about this? My, my spouse just committed adultery. That's heat. Any, any situation in life is, is heat, okay? So, so then the, the question becomes, how do we respond to this situation, this heat that's been introduced into my life? Well, one possibility is that we have a thorny response. It's, it's thorns are our ungodly response to the situation. So, so, so now we're upset because, you know, Emmett or Matthew took the last cinnamon roll. You know, we're not like, you know, it wouldn't be right to, of course, you know, lash out at a four or five-year-old. But, but, but internally, you know, we're a little upset. Or we just kind of drive on by or the tire goes flat and it just kind of ruins our whole week and it's just this, this crazy ungodly response. How do, we, how do we deal with these ungodly responses? Selfishness, pride, envy, anger, impatience, stinginess, and the list could go on. Well, we go back to the cross. The cross gives us God's redemptive power to bring change in our life. So he, he, he takes our ingratitude and, and we look at the cross, we look at what God wants for our lives as well as what he has done for us in the gospel and we say, how can we not be grateful in light of who God is and the grace that he so freely distributed to us? Or we, 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 we look at the cross and we, and we see, see that God is 
given us his grace so that we might not respond in anger, but we might respond in love. We might respond with patience. We might respond with forgiveness to those who have offended us. We might actually engage someone, not with a haughty spirit, with us, but with a spirit of gentleness. And then as the gospel begins to, to grab hold of our hearts and, and, and Jesus reigns in our life and the cross is, is, is working its redemptive power in our hearts, then we produce fruit. Our godly response to the situation. So, so this is, this, I mean, just this week, go home, this afternoon. Wife wants to watch HGTV. You want to watch the Patriots? Every time. Heat, thorns, cross, fruit. Heat, thorns, cross, fruit. And the question becomes, are we living a fruitful life? A fruitful life is an attractive life. A fruitful life is a life worth following. A fruitful life is a life that is blessed by God. Listen to Jeremiah 17, verses seven and eight. He says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. This is a life that is connected to God. This is a life that loves God. This is a life that loves God's word and heeds God's word and seeks to live it out in humility day by day by day. That's Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. The man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. So good. Memorize those verses. Now, verses five and six. Just before it, he says this. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub. A shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come he shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So, so, so is your life more like a tree or is your life more like a shrub? I mean, just, just to kind of refresh your memory, okay, I just planted some shrubs out in front of our, our new house, you know, not too long ago. And by the way, I was feeling good about myself, you know, a little bit of pride started welling up. Hey, super dad, super husband, jeans are all muddy, shirts all muddy. I thought, you know, I was doing my thing there. And then, you know, even, even as great as all of that was, you step back and you look at your handiwork and what do you have? used to have a couple shrubs. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's nothing, there's nothing glorious and majestic about a shrub. <laughs> but God says, look, if you trust in yourself, if you go your own way, this is what your life's gonna look like. It's gonna look like a little measly, withered up shrub in the desert that bears no fruit. On the other hand, if we stay connected to God and if, if we will embrace the, the choice that Christ sets before us in these final four verses, then we can live a life that bears much fruit. So the counterculture of Christ calls us to a life of integrity. It calls us to a life of internal transformation. And then finally, it calls us to a life of obedience. Look in verses 46 through 49. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. 
He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. What Jesus is doing in the gospels, listen, we know, we understand Jesus was not just a teacher. Someone people wanted to do, yeah, he's a wise teacher. I'll take a little bit of that. Anything more than that. I'm, I'm, so we can't really do that. Because when Jesus teaches, he teaches with authority. When Jesus gives a command, he gives a command in such a way that we are not just, hey, this is a good idea here, but this is God calling me to follow him. By the way, another implicit claim to deity in the gospel of Luke. Who can forgive sin? Luke 5, Jesus. Oh, I thought God, Jesus is God. Who, who can tell me what to do with my life? Who can give commands for me to follow? God? Jesus. Jesus is God. And, and he's not just giving some suggestions for right and wrong, ethical system. Christianity certainly has an ethic, okay? But it's an ethic that flows from worship. So we are not just keeping kind of some principles for life, but we are keeping commands and principles in order to worship the one who gave the commands. We call him Lord, Lord. We keep his word. The only difference, by the way, between the one who was foolish and built his house on, on, on ground without a foundation and the one who was wise and, and built his foundation on a rock is doing the word, keeping the word, not just hearing the word, but living it out. And so I want to I wanna read from Deuteronomy 6, and this is a particularly strong word for, for mothers and, and fathers here, parents, but this is, this is across the board applicable uh, to, to those of us who want to know God. How do we know God? We know God through his word. How do we love God? We keep his commands so if we want to be a church and have a culture of, 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 of a church culture that really values God's word, and this is, this is a picture here for us, okay? God says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What is, what is the picture here? The picture is that the word is so supreme. The word is so valuable. What God has said and given to us in his word is, is something from which we cannot even escape because we love it that much. God, help us to have this kind of life. 
not just knows the word a little bit, but, but knows it to the point where we love it, we value it. We, we, what about your conversations? I mean, even with your, your closest friends, your closest Christian friends, your family, how spiritual is your conversation? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying, of course, we talk about politics. <laughs> we, we talk about sports. We talk about local affairs. We talk about work. We talk about our families. We, it, it, those are, those are, that's good and well. But, but what is the nature of the content of our conversations? What is the tone of those conversations, even when we're talking about these other affairs? Is the word in our mind and in our heart? Does it come forth? Does the word inform the way that we are viewing life and how we're going to, to, to act in any given situation? This is the culture that Jesus puts forth. And he says, look, if you, if you want your life to count, if you want your, your life to, to, to be unshakable, unbreakable, then, then you not only need to hear my word, but you need to live my word. You need to keep my word. So as we close, I want you to think about verse 46 here. Look at, look at this. He says this. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's version of this, he gives us a little more information. He goes on to say that, that many, many people, when we one day stand before God in the judgment, will have a conversation with Jesus that goes something like this. Lord, Lord. Man, I, I, here I am. I've been, I've been waiting to arrive at your pearly gates and, 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 and didn't I seek to live my life for you? Didn't you when you saw my, my life, did, couldn't you see that, 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 that I, was, I, I was in church here almost every Sunday after all? And you know what Jesus is going to respond? Who are you. Who are you? It's not enough to be a little religious. It's not enough to go to church a few times. It's not even enough to read the Bible from cover to cover. We have to have a heart that has been transformed from the inside out, that, that it would say, God, you are my highest allegiance. I, I, I owe my highest affections to you. And, and, I, and I love you so much that I would love and keep your word. It's, it's those people that, that Jesus would say, you know what, welcome in, my son, my daughter. So is your life built on the rock of Christ? When you stand before God one day, will, will, will you be welcomed in, not because you had any goodness in and of yourself, but because of what God had done in the gospel through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because here's the, here's the story on judgment in, in, the, in the Bible, in the, in the gospels. We see that there will be a judgment. The question is, will the judgment fall on you or will the judgment fall on Christ. This is why he died. This is why we're all about the cross because at the cross, Jesus took the penalty, the condemnation, the judgment, the curse for my sin. 
when I could do nothing to save myself, when I could not live a perfectly righteous life before God, Christ lived it in my place. When I should have received the penalty for my sin, Jesus was my substitute, mediator between me and God. And so my judgment has fallen on him and I will be welcomed in. Is that the case for you? I mean, you may, be, you, may be, you may have been in a church a million times, and you, I mean, 46 is a warning then. And you would say, Tanner, you know what? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that when I stand before God one day that, that, that I'm in. Then, then what do you need to do? You need to admit to God your need for him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the needy who say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross, I'm going to cling. And so you admit your need, you admit that your sin has separated you from God, but that then through Christ, through belief in him, you can have life. You can have an abundant life now, eternal life forever with him. So it's admit your sin and your need for him. Believe in Christ and confess him as the Lord of your life. That's it. It's not, it's, it's not any more difficult than that. But it's, even though it's free, it's, it's costly, right? Because those of us who confess him as Lord means he has authority over everything in our lives. And so we're gonna pray and we're gonna move into a time of response and, and we're gonna sing about having one pure and holy passion with our lives. We're gonna sing about how Christ is our rock. And so I, I, pr- I pray that you would just take some time to reflect and then you would say, is this true of, of my life? And, and, and if it's not, would you just cry out to God? I mean, you don't have to like wait until after the service. You don't have to wait until like this evening when you go to sleep. I mean, you can just cry out to God right now. God, I need you. And hopefully that's the cry of every one of our hearts today. Admit our need, believe in Christ, confess him as Lord, and do that every single day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we respond to you and, your, and respond to your word, that you would work in us God, we need your spirit to guide us. We need your spirit to to show us where we need grace. Father, we don't want to be those who think we have it all together. We want to be those who would say, I don't have it all together. I need you, and and I need your help, your grace, to even begin to help someone else. So Lord, would you, would you transform Redemption Hill Church? Would you transform us as a people who love you, love your word, and live your word day by day? We need your help, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.